Hi, and welcome to episode 28 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Jude Ray. You might know Jude as one of Australia's leading portraitists, but she's as interested in depicting faces as she is in painting gas bottles, fire extinguishers, and interiors of airports. She's won the Porsche Gage Memorial Award for Portraiture twice, as well as last year winning the Bulgari Prize, which is awarded in partnership with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. She's exhibited in over 45 solo shows across Australia, New Zealand, Germany and the US. And she's been involved in many more group shows and her work is held in major public and private collections across Australia and internationally. I met up with Jude at her studio last week and we had a very enjoyable couple of hours talking about her life and views on painting and looking at her incredible work. All the paintings we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Jude where she was born and where she grew up. I was born in Manly Hospital and grew up on the northern beaches in Sydney. And what, was it, what are your memories of, like, the earliest sort of memories of art as a child? I grew up around it because my dad was a painter and a sculptor and worked at the Australian Museum, so there's always interesting things around. Well, he's... Um, I actually um, noticed that he has work in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, so he, he was a major painter back in his day. Do you remember him painting? When oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, Mum has always reminded me that, or told me that um, I used to just sort of sit and watch. I was allowed to sit and watch until I got in the way. And I got in the way when I, you know, was got big enough to trip over, I suppose. But she said when I was a very little kid, I was just, I would just watch. Ah. It's just odd. I don't remember it. But um, So he was painting in oils? Yes, it. yes, and his studio was at the back of the house where there was a good south light and I think I think that it was their bedroom as well. It was quite a big room at the back of the house up on the hill at Harbord. Did you were you interested in art in high school? I mean was that Oh yeah, you can't grow up with it like that and not have it be part of yourself. Um, but I went to the Julian National Art School on the weekends or during the week at night, uh-huh. all through high school. I started when I was... Mum and Dad sent me there, let me go there when I was about... the year I started high school, so 11 or 12. So you would have been drawing seriously at that point, like drawing... Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. Even, yeah, And painting or just drawing, really? No, I think it took a while for them, for, for me to start painting... Um, at the at Ashton's, um, but and I can't remember what year it would have been. Mm. I think I was learning painting seriously the year after I left school. I went, I went to Ashton's for a year. And oh, full painting. time, sort of. You know, I was all over the place. I was. I had a fairly. I was fairly mixed up. Difficult, difficult um, teenage and early adulthood. Just. Mm. So at that point you weren't thinking, I want to be an artist or anything no, like that? Not no, not really. <laughs> it was sort of no, just trying I, to no. get some direction. When I did finally, after high school, when I did finally get my act together to study, I, I enrolled 
uh, I actually enrolled in biochem at Sydney University, but my periodic table was in tatters, so <laughs> I, I shifted to fine arts and I studied art history at Sydney University. Ah, and how and, was that? Uh, Oh, the mediocre degree that I took five years to do three years <laughs> degree in. Um, I yeah, as I said, it was a, I was it was I was dealing with a whole lot of things, and um, it was very interesting. Uh, actually, I wanted to study English, but I managed to drop out two years in a row. So, um, in other words, other parts of your life were sort of impacting I, yeah. on your education. Yeah, yeah. So, and I yeah. think that's, it's hard for a lot of young people who go sort of, oh, I didn't go straight from school, but, oh, you know, mm. it's, you're still very young. Yeah. And I, I, I uh, it took me, I think when I was, I decided I didn't want to be, I wasn't going to make any sort of art historian. I, um, I decided I'd paint and I gave myself, 10 years, if it took me 10 years to even not, if I didn't get a, a, like a solo show within 10 years, I was going to, I'd, I'd stop then. And oh, that's pretty I generous. That I think pessimistic is probably more likely. I don't know that the 10 years was being kind to myself so much as sort of reflecting more a sort of a more pessimistic view of the world or myself in it, something like that. Anyway, um, uh, I, I, even at the time I thought, gosh, that's, I felt quite proud of the 10-year plan. <laughs> it's a great plan. I think people should adopt that. Especially, oh, well, because realistically, but realistically, to develop skills as a painter, as you, I mean, you're, what you're doing now, I mean, it takes, oh, it's, it's a thing. lifetime, mm. isn't it, really? Mm. So 10 years is really not that much in a way. But so did you fulfil that plan? I was offered a show before the 10 years was up. Oh, well. <laughs> she says, sounding surprised. Um, yeah, I actually, um, I can remember going to see Frank Waters, which is an indication of my naivety because what I was painting wouldn't have been interesting to Frank, but he was very generous and generous in his in his reception of me you know he was very kind is the word and um suggested I go and see Robin Brady and I don't think I did but Robin eventually contacted me I think that's how it happened and and offered me a show and that was I had I had finished my art history degree and I was at that point um I think I'd gone to City Art to do the um, to convert the degree into a into a practice a studio. It was like a postgraduate diploma. And um, so, what sort of work were you doing um, when you had your first show? Um, I had been trying to work within a figurative. Uh, frame, um, and when I say figure, I mean with the human figure, and I don't know what had prompted it, but I was painting draped figures, figures actually completely concealed in in um, in drapery. Mm. I think that was <laughs> this is a theme that developed uh, that I developed further when I got to New Zealand years later. But it, it was sort of like 
sort of wanting to to paint the figure and not paint it, <laughs> and and I extended that that into wanting to paint and not paint, or either rather wanting to represent and not represent, because eventually I dropped the the figure from the 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 equation and just painted the the fabric the drapery, uh-huh. and so I when I it took me quite a while to, to develop that that visual language for myself, um, and. Was that sort of like a reaction to Julian Ashton, the way you it didn't want to? It was a reaction to... to everything that was that I was struggling with. It was it was the question of why paint, mm. and and I, really only in retrospect did I realise that it was it was also about not just why paint, but what was painting. And um, by the time I was making the still lives of crumpled drapery, which is what I ended up starting to move into quite specifically in New Zealand when I I arrived there in 1990. Um, I'd already left that idea of, which is very much a sort of Renaissance paradigm, I suppose, or model where you you make a, a figure composition uh, you draw it, you work it out, and then you transfer it to canvas, and then you paint it. Mm. But I'd always want to move a figure or you know, mess it around <laughs> somehow. It just wasn't working. And then I started realizing that this is the point at which I thought, actually, that's I can't. Nothing I can imagine is as interesting as the fall of light on the fabric. It's just much more. Yeah. Something that interested me much so, more. So that drapery, you were doing that drapery they, for they a long were time? a la prima from mm. a crumpled bit of linen that I was not painting linen. Actually, I found an old linen bed sheet which had that lovely, heavy, I've still got it, it's an old linen. Um, and there's a fabric thing here because my mother was a, 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 a um, an upholsterer. Oh, and she's right. always sewn and she always had a an old quarter horsepower industrial sewing machine in the laundry at Harbord. And ah. I grew up with that sewing machine and with all the lovely fragments of, um, you know, damask and things like that yeah. that she would make linen um, loose covers from for other people and right. uh, for us, for herself as well. Uh, so there's this connection to fabric that I, I feel very strongly mm. and... So it sort of brought it together in yeah. various ways. And so you spent, was it 10 years in New Zealand? Mm. When I was in Paris uh, with the Australia Council studio, I joined up, I, on the way there, I visited an old boyfriend in, in New York and his good buddy was visiting that I'd known when we were together back in early university days. And um, I ended up getting together with him. He was living in England, and so I would spend quite a lot of time at that residency actually visiting London. And um, we got married. And he was a Kiwi. We were living in, I went to London, live in London. I thought I was going to go live in London. And he lost his job and decided to go back and finish his law degree. So we ended up in Christchurch, New Zealand, which is not really was part, not part of my plan, but it was the best thing really that ever was happened. Was it? Why? Oh, I loved New Zealand. Yeah. I I found it very interesting. I and it, I guess because I had come from a bigger place, I, I felt not 
quite so overwhelmed by it, a small art scene. Mm. I mean, it it's, it's, is a small place, but um, it's very special. When you came back, um, so we're coming up to now the early 2000s, yes. um, you actually rose to prominence with three, well, in the early 2000s, two um, prestigious art awards, and that was the um, Portia Geach Memorial Award, which you won twice in 2005 and 2008. I wanted to talk to you about your um, 2008 winning Portia Geach Award, and I was talking to you earlier about the fact that I'd read, first of all, it's called Self-Portrait, The Year My Husband Left, and I had read that prior to that uh, painting, you had travelled overseas to Europe, to Spain, and you had said that you, you felt you were a little crazy at the time and you were desperate to make changes in yourself and your work, not knowing where to start. And you said it was the beginning of a reconstruction. No, well, it was uh, very much on the heels of my marriage breaking up. And, and I think when you when a, a long-term relationship like that, because we'd been together for 18 years, mm. long-term relationship um, comes apart. One's always sort of, there's always a bit of reconstruction involved. And I felt like a, I felt like a, a vine that had sort of grown around a pole and the pole had, <laughs> the pole was gone and there was a hole. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, he, he was, he was my best friend, um, mm. and he's still a very dear friend. But you know, it, 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 we didn't have kids, so it wasn't a big deal. We, in the sense that nobody else's lives were really affected, and um, but I had this this reconstruction project that I needed to do, uh, and I was in what in a, sense for your own self? Or was I, it, it was almost like I had to find not just who I was, but go back to before I got together with Chris and, and figure out what I, who I was then, what I was then. And, um, and I'd done a lot of painting in the interim. And so that was me as well. Mm. Um, and I, so I, I, I spent a lot of time looking at work, uh, looking at uh, painting um, in Europe in particular. Um, and the the piece that you read, I think, um, was th about the, the uh, Pushkitch entry that I made that year. Was uh, that I, I'd been in in Madrid and seen I'd be I'd gone to Madrid to look at Velasquez in particular, mm. and in the same gallery in the Prado upstairs in a, a contemporary wing. Uh, there was an exhibition of Cy Twombly's um, Lepanto cycle, which was 12 large canvases that he painted for the 2001 Venice Biennale. Mm. And I had never seen them. And there they were, and they just made the most enormous impression on me. Mm. And um, the, the Lepanto cycle is a series of depictions of the battle that occurred between the... Uh, forces of the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims against the Christians Empire mm. um, in the Bay of Lepanto. Some spoke to me more than others, um, but there, there, there are these sort of images of, of these runs of paint and there, there are boats on water and of course the runs 
give the impression of reflection and mm. and there's this fire and in some of the canvases you, you know you can stand back in this and and something that looks like a man of war jellyfish <laughs> emerges from these extraordinary um, dribbles of paint that are there's much more to it than the the vertical fluid, fluidity that he he that there are all sorts of um, tonal and chromatic relationships that got me going as well. But mm. I I I got back and I I was just I wasn't thinking about entering anything in the Portuguese. Mm. I just I the the self portrait seemed to emerge out of this desperation of wanting to change. I should just describe that painting actually quickly, just the, the winning painting, is that it's a figure of you and your dog Tilly mm. in your studio, I presume. Mm, um, in Canberra, yes. Yeah, in front of um, your canvas. And and it does have a, like a dripping uh, paint on the surface. I, I, I'd been looking at Velasquez, thinking about this sort of theme that has always underpinned my 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 work is which is a, a sort of tension between the will to describe and a need to have that dis- that to to open the paint so that it, it has an op- an open quality about it um, what do you so, mean um, that i wanted to i've always wanted to keep the paint alive and often in my efforts to <laughs> to describe, it gets a bit tight. It's always got a bit tight, and so my what I've always sort of been conscious of trying to do is to work against that if I can. But I wasn't thinking about the Portuguese. In fact, when I I I, I decided on spec to enter it. Um, and gave it that title the year my husband left. <laughs> Poor old Chris emailed me and said, gee, thanks. <laughs> but um, Didn't he, you say in hindsight that you should have called it um, Tilly and Me or something? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. It was, it was definitely Tilly and Me. But um, I, I decided I'd enter it, so I think I might have entered it online. I don't know whether you can or not. Anyway, I'd rolled it. I'd taken it. I, it was such a sort of short-term thing I couldn't even – I didn't have, have time to have it shipped to Sydney. So I took it off its stretcher, rolled it up. Um, I was going to drive to my mum's place in Sydney, re-stretch it and get it picked up from there, but there wasn't even time for that. So I just thought, I'll just drop in and re-stretch it. And that's what I did. I dropped into the um, the mascot Delivery depot and restretched it underneath the stairs. And you've also done uh, quite a few portrait commissions. I have, and um, I find it very interesting because a few of my guests have said that they will never do another portrait commission because <laughs> it's very stressful. Um, but you've said that um, the limitations imposed by commissions sometimes can be creatively challenging. I think they. I, I, I think it just depends on how you approach it. And um, what uh, sort of what sort of restrictions do you get with commissions? Like, oh well, you know, a, a, 
A boardroom portrait is a fairly limited thing. The artists that you've spoken to are quite right. And often they have a size restriction and mm -hmm. that's quite frequently three feet by four feet and mm -hmm. that's changed quite a lot even since I've been become familiar with the, the whole sort of... Um, in what yeah, way has it changed? What you can be? Oh, it, it's a little more flexible these days. Um, uh, if you go into any boardroom and you'll see why it's, they all need to, as, I'll quote one of my sitters, um, uh, Dr. Ian Chubb, who's the, who was the uh, Vice Chancellor of the ANU. Mm. Um, and we were talking about, you know, how the dimensions and, and so on. He's a very funny, dry man, actually. I quite really liked him. He said, I need to be no bigger and no smaller than anybody else. <laughs> and that's what it was like. It's all about... Oh, and, I mean, consistency. This is what the problem with portraits is. It's about power and social status oh, and money. Yeah. And not directly necessarily about money, but power and social status, absolutely, mm. always in those sorts of commissioning situations. It's not related to power if it's you're painting, you know, you, your sister or your mother or, mm. you know, someone you, you're close to and you love. And, and that's an entirely different kind of painting and an entirely different relationship. Um, but just generally speaking, portraits are always interesting. It's, and daunting and, and sort mm. of bracing. You know, there you are sitting opposite another person that you don't know very well, which is sometimes good because um, it's hard. To, the more you know someone, the more complex it is. Well, that there's a whole emotional level on top of... Yeah, yeah. I, it just seems that the more you know of someone, the more preposterous the idea of trying to capture anything of them is. <laughs> what it's funny because some people like for example I think of my father and I can't actually I, I, I can't imagine him as another person like as a stranger mm. I sort of think that he nobody looks him. like him at all mm. and that I can't even see him in anyone else because I think he's this sort of unique mm. human that I can't see any likeness in anyone else it's so bizarre and he's the only person that I feel like that about strange I think I think a portrait requires a certain amount of distance you know you have to and yeah. I you know I'm not known I, I don't think I'm I'm well you just described a situation that I relate, relate to very strongly I'm not you know there's no distance with my family mm. and I've tried to paint my mother didn't you know I've never pulled it off really mm. um and to whom I feel very close. Mm. Even if um, you apply those sort of rules of, you know, proportion and sort of observing and... I don't think it's... I think they're... No. It's mm. funny, isn't it? Isn't mm. that funny? To, to but, but I think it's also a little bit like the... who I don't know who I'm quoting here now, but um, someone will know. A writer always needs a little chip of ice in them to write. You know how writers are um, famous for alienating friends and family. <laughs> they find their way into characters, etc. But it's, it's also that 
that distance. The chip of ice is the distance. And, and maybe that's, that's with the portraits in particular as well. Mm. You last year won the Bulgari Award uh, for an absolutely stunning work, SL359, which uh, we should be talking about now because it's your still life is, work is something that you're very well known for. And um, you do absolutely beautiful works with um, collections of, of different vessels and um, you're also well known for using things like gas cylinders, fire extinguishers, as well as jars and you know, other containers. What is it about those objects, like those, those gas cylinders, for example, and the, those more industrial type objects, what, what is it that appealed to you, attracted you with those sort of um, objects? Well, uh, initially my aim was to try and use objects that didn't have associations. So when I was painting, um, I started out with teacups, you start small. Um, I, I found that uh, in New Zealand there's a very sort of famous um, pottery called Crown Lin, and um, they made domestic ware. And I found that when I was starting out um, with these little still life compositions with teacups and things like that, people would zero in on the ones that they recognised, like a New Zealand Railways Cup or a Crown Limb Cup. And, mm. and I thought, oh, it's just too, it's a diversion. And I, I got quite irritated by it. And, and I started wanting to um, not just, sorry, I should go back and say that still life appealed to me because it had it it was fairly um neutral it didn't it wasn't driven by narrative i got quite irritated that you know every time you you present a painting um the discourse that surrounded it in most critical writing was what the painting was about not about painting it was about what it was of mm. and i wanted to avoid that um and so my attraction to still life had a lot to do with that. Isn't um, the best way to avoid that to work in abstract work, right? So that people yeah, don't I jump. Yeah, I usually that. want to. I usually want to have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> and um, so, so when I moved to Canberra, um, I I was visiting the local dump. I had a recycle area there, and um, there were all these gas canisters and old fire extinguishers. I'd never seen anything like that before. I, I, I guess I hadn't been to a recycle station or something. Mm -hmm. and, and they were so compellingly beautiful. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just the colours, it was the shapes. They were, I was very attracted to them. So I, I, I bought a shopping trolley full of them. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> and... Um, I embarked on this project of, of developing new work with them um, and, and realised, of course, that I'd shot myself in the foot in a way because of everyone just went, love your new still lives, Jude, new subject matter. And then, you know, it was, suddenly it was all about the content again. Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, the and problem is with those. I mean, if you're trying to get away from narrative, they're so anthropomorphic. I know, I know, I know. I, know. I mean, look, 
but you it's cannot help giving see, you an opportunity to. Mm. Well, I mean, the first thing you think of when you see is, is, I mean, you see a cluster of these objects, and they're all different heights, and they've got these nozzles, and they've got like nozzles that look yeah. human, and then, and you just think straight away of, of, a, of a you know cluster of human beings, and, or and it was the year of the big the big bushfires in Canberra, so everyone oh. thought they were about the bushfires as well. And, right. and, and none of that had even crossed my mind. But um, mm. I, and when I, I realised that I'd, I, I, it sort of, the decision had sort of backfired for me a little bit, I, I ran with it anyway because it was so compelling. It's a bit like the portraits. <laughs> you think I was so interesting. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to quibble. Um, and they are very strongly, it's very strange. The, the, the nozzles aren't so much like eyes uh, as I said earlier, it's more like they're like mouths. It, yeah. They're strange, um, hmm, strange sorts of associations. But they feel to me so strongly now of, um, of, of a pre-climate change world. They're just steeped in fossil fuel, basically. Mm. And in that sense, they're, they're, they're receding very fast into some other reality that hopefully we're leaving behind, but, mm. you know, that's still up for grabs. Yeah. Um, and what, what, when you compose those still lives, um, is that something that takes a lot of thought and a lot of uh, careful placement? Just generally. Yes, gen- generally oh, when yes. You, with your still lives. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. They're, very, they're highly... They're highly constructed. And, I mean, you know, a part of the non-narrative thing was very much about avoiding that sense of a domestic scene that's been left and a table that has been occupied, all implying some sort of human presence. I mean, human presence is always implied by things that, are meant to be picked up and held, I suppose, mm. but but this idea that 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 they're they're pictures of of human absence. I, I don't. I'm not particularly interested in that. I'm much more interested in the fact that still life painting turns the studio in, into a little bit of a, a laboratory where I can study my own perceptions in the context of what it means to paint. I can remember my father saying, there's no outline on that, that apple. There's no, there's no, it's not a line. Mm. And he was referring in his own mind, I'm sure, to Cezanne um, and his own experience of the fact that, that there is no sharp edge on things. It's, it's always to, if it's, Turning and the gas cylinders are a perfect example of that. They are so subtle. Mm. That curve is so subtle. And of course, the more difficult it is, the more I'm fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so those curves are mm, um, never really there. That that curve, that the, that yeah, outline is curve. never there. Yeah. Or you know that that outline that is anywhere on it they're all curvy yes there's nothing sharp about them they're all curvy and so they sort of move not in actual fact but in in visual terms they're they're never really resolved and and when one tone is lost 
next to another. When a, when a, um, something is warm against something that's cool, but they're the same tone, in, I mean, it's a, it's a variant of, of um, simultaneous contrast, which is when you get um, two colours which are uh, maybe opposite, like a red and a green, but they're the same tone, you get this buzz. Mm. Well, a more refined uh, version of that is when you get two tones, um, but the colours are tertiary or, you know, yeah, yeah. more subtle. And, and so you can see, actually right outside this window, there's the yellow crane against a blue sky. It's just up there. Oh, I'm yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you can't, there are, I can screw my eyes up and the crane disappears against the blue. The bright cadmium yellow of the crane disappears against the blue because they're the same tone. Yeah, right. Isn't amazing. Yes, that's right, that's right. It's, and it's such a... And, and of course, when they're just greys, like a pink grey and a blue grey, then it, it's much more subtle. It is, yeah. yeah. I was talking about using a palette knife with the thicker paint earlier on, um, and when a, a long time ago, I used a palette knife to to remove paint and to blur things, and then to reapply with a brush maybe and the palette knife is lends itself to both removal and application mm -hmm. and and um, yeah I, I find it assists me in not being too particular about certain detail I, I think the more detail the worse in lots mm. of ways well we're sitting in your studio now um, with two beautiful large works um, very, uh, would you call them architectural interiors or yes yeah. yes have you been using a palette knife on those works as well yes although uh, this, it's an entirely different thing with just painting at this scale compared to how I might use it on a um, in a on, in a smaller context um, but yes oh, look I'll try and get the paint on anywhere it goes <laughs> Basically. Would you use a bigger palette knife on these larger works? No, I don't works? actually. Now there's a thought. <laughs> they are so beautiful. I don't mean I must that. say, Jude, look, when I walked in, I'll just tell everybody, I walked in here and I was just blown away. <laughs> they are just stunning paintings and they're going oh. to be exhibited in a few weeks at, well, actually a couple of weeks at um, the Drill Hall Gallery in, mm. in Canberra. And... Um, it's basically a survey of your work, um, which mm. is going to include still lifes and, um, and some portraits. So with these interiors, there's a lot of there's, – there's nobody in them. There's, they're, they're, they're basically no. empty of, yes. of yes. human life. Yes. Um, but you have a lot – I notice with a lot of your interiors, there's a lot of reflective surfaces, like a lot yes. of windows and yeah. shiny tiles on the floor. Yeah. Um, is that is that important in your work and these sort of works that you have that very much so um, they very much grew out of my interest in non-figurative painting so an abstract painting um, which very much informs the still lives and the idea of an architectural interior is essentially to give me a geometric framework for dealing with 
the tension between image and illusion on the one hand and painting and materiality on the other, which is essentially what a painting seems to me to be. It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's about illusion and materiality existing at the same time. And uh, so interiors give me a framework to explore that and, mm. and the more reflective the interior, the more that ambiguity between um, illusion and materiality can be played out in the geometry of reflections. And okay, so when you say materiality, you mean the painting as an object, yeah, in a way. Painting as a as a, as a sort of physical thing, mm. um, more physical than say a photograph, um, and yeah, yeah, as a, as a yeah. physical thing. We were talking earlier about the linen you use, that you have been using a, uh, a what, what, how would you describe, a rougher, rougher linen? Yeah, it's or? a coarser gauge. Coarser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does that assist in, in that sort of aim? It, that it forces a painter like me to um, put more paint on and change how I manage it, which is uh, very good. And do you find that you, do you ever use a medium with your with your paint or? Uh, yeah, I I just use a very um, simple mix of uh, stand oil and um, odorless solvent, varying in viscosity according to my needs. Mm. But again, that's another thing that I'm finding uh, I I use less. That it's usually to dilute the paint. Um, and I'm finding that's less right. interesting to So you to. would generally use it straight from the tube, would you? Um, yeah, I guess, I, I guess it's, yes, but not in great slathering. You know, I, I'm just, I'm quite conscious of how little paint I use. <laughs> in, well, a, you must use a lot of paint for these yeah, large yeah, works. Yeah, I'm proud of yeah. having gone through a few tubes. Oh, it's so, so wonderful. Anyway, well, thank you so much for having me and allowing me to see these wonderful works. Good luck with the show coming up. It's, uh, it's going to be great to see those up on the wall. And um, thanks again. <laughs> thanks, Marie. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jude. Her show coming up at the Drill Hall Gallery in Canberra is opening on the 18th of August and it's called Jude Ray, A Space of Measured Light. You can go to the website talkingwithpainters.com for links to things and people we talked about on the show. I'll also be posting a short video of Jude in her studio on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel where you'll also catch a few other videos of previous guests. Just search Talking With Painters playlist on YouTube. Also, don't forget you can follow Talking With Painters on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the uh, show on iTunes or via your favourite podcast app and you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me next time for the next episode of Talking With Painters. The answer to the question, why paint? is paint. Um, so when you're painting representationally, 
it's the, the, the aim is not to make the paint invisible, otherwise you just take a photograph. Mm. The, the, the aim is to, um, is to make the paint, integrate the paint with the image in such a way that it says something interesting, <laughs> which, which um, it has the potential not to, you know. It has the potential for the paint to be uh, less than interesting 